Welcome to the DSO Hygienist Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Deal. On this episode, our guest is Janet Hagerman. As the fractional CHO, Chief Hygiene Officer, Janet trains emerging DSOs to create a patient-centered hygiene department that is profitable, consistent, and scalable. An international speaker, author, and consultant, Janet is the author of numerous articles, webinars, and signature books, Selling Dentistry, Meetings Make Money, and Bloom. A Medical College of Georgia graduate, Janet's experience includes over 30 years of clinical and coaching experience with both solo and small to large group practices. She is a leader. As a DSO Director of Dental Hygiene, she managed over 100 practices. Janet's specialty is to enrich, enliven, and empower others. I'd like to welcome Janet Hagerman to the podcast. Hey, Christine, thank you so much. I'm so excited about this. I am so excited to have you. And I've got many, many questions for you. But my top question so far is what is a fractional CHO? Well, CHO stands for Chief Hygiene Officer. And, you know, typically in DSOs or any company for that matter, you have what they call the C-suite levels. So you have your CEO, Chief Executive Officer, COO, Chief Operational Officer, CMO, Chief Marketing Officer. So you have these different, and in in DSOs, you typically have some sort of a clinical officer or they have may have different names for them, but a, a dentist who is in charge of upholding the clinical standards. But we don't have a chief hygiene officer. We'll have you know d- dental hygiene directors and VPs. So in keeping with what my, my goal is to how to help DSOs, I um, I thought I invented. CHO, but since then, I've seen it um, in other places too. So other people are catching on. Uh, Fractional has to do with the fact that many young companies don't have it in their budget to to pay for a full-time, whatever that particular C-suite position is. So a fractional person goes in as an expert. They have they, they may have been a chief hygiene officer, a chief marketing officer in another company, as I was. And then they can go on a more part-time basis for a fraction of the cost and a fraction of the time and help that young company get a foothold, get a good foundation in whatever particular department they represent. So as a fractional CHO, I help young emerging DSOs create and develop a hygiene department that is patient-centered, profitable, and scalable. Got it. Now, can you tell me a little bit about the different roles that you are talking about? So a hygiene director, what is the role of a hygiene director? Oh my gosh. Well, everything, you know, depending, when, when I started out, I created my hygiene department from scratch, there wasn't really anything in place. So I think the first thing that you need to do is determine, you know, how big are you? How big do you want to grow? And what do you want the culture to be? So hopefully the company has a mission, a vision, core values that they stand for. 
that are something above and beyond simply we offer the best patient care. I mean, we hope that that's a basic standard. Um, but whatever the company's standards are and core values, then well, what does the hygiene department want to stand for? And is that congruent with the company? So coming up with your cultural core values, mission, vision, and then looking at how big do you want to grow? Do you want to grow to 10 practices? Do you want to grow to 20 and then sell to a larger DSO? You know, you need to determine what your growth plan is and then decide what kind of a hygiene team am I as the director going to need to support my efforts. So if we come up with a new protocol, how do we implement that? How do we get the message to our people that are in the practices? How do we train them on it? How do we do something as simple as onboard new employees, new doctors and new dentists? I mean, new dentists and new hygienists. So, so there's basic foundational tasks that need to be done. And then there's daily routine tasks. Looking at the metrics is huge to be able, that's the, really the only way we have to measure um, uh, progress or lack thereof. So right. looking at performance in terms of, you know, just for an example, what is, you know, we all know, you know, what is your difference in your profi percentage and your and your perio percentages in terms of taking care of that 75% of the population that has uh, peri some level of perio disease. So when you look at that in a single practice, it's fairly easy to, to monitor and correct that. But when you're looking across, you know, a hundred offices, say, for example, as I did when, when I was the director of hygiene, you can't possibly be in every practice. So the, the most objective, not subjective, but objective way to measure performance is to be looking at, at metrics. And then part of your job as the director, training your team to train the hygienists to understand that correlation and not be afraid of it and not resist looking at the numbers, but looking at it as a supportive tool to help you do a better job. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I agree. I, I, I think people get so hung up on numbers mm -hmm. and it's just a measurement. It's not, mm -hmm. I mean, you can't tell if you're improving if you don't measure. Mm -hmm. So I definitely think that's something that people should not be so afraid of is the numbers. Now yeah. you were talking about the, the different, like the director position. And I know when we onboard at my DSO, we use mentors so mm -hmm. each new hire is set up with a mentor that kind of goes through all the protocols and things like that. Yeah. Now, when we're talking about kind of a larger DSO, what are some of the other opportunities in the management position that are available? Well, I can tell you the way we did it with 100 practices. So that's sort of a nice in-between spot. Obviously, if you have five practices, it's a little different, but... So in our situation, we had four regions. So I had four clinical hygiene administrators that were directly reported to me. Each one of them was responsible for the hygiene in their region. They were responsible fiscally and they were responsible for nurturing, if you will, cultivating the relationships with those hygienists. Now, each of those hygiene administrators had anywhere from maybe 25 to 30 practices under their belt. So once again, how do you touch all those in a month? 
So below that level, this is like corporate structure. Below that level, we had one or two, I forget what we call them, mentors or whatever, leaders in each area. So we had, had, had the regions broken down further. So we had a good maybe a dozen of these various mentors that facilitated the monthly hygiene meetings and also were there to mentor and help with the onboarding. So they practiced clinically, but not full time. So they had some extra time to be available to mentors. So, and you know, Christine, each, how many practices are in your, in your DS? Uh, 35. Okay. 35. So that's a fairly significant number. So it, it just depends on how big the DSO is or the group is in terms of how many mentors you'll need and what that's going to look like and what that organizational structure is going to look like. But the bit better handle you have on that, the easier it's going to be to onboard and also train. And all of this has to do with taking care of our hygienists so our hygienists are happy. You know, I just read a statistic yesterday that something like in six years, 30% of the hygienists are going to be out of the, out of the industry. Wow. So now hopefully we'll have some graduate, you know, the graduating students will somewhat make up for that, but you know, why is that? And what can we do to help our hygienists um, feel like they um, have the tools that they need, that they're being appreciated, that they have the training that they need. So those are the types of things I think that a DSO can offer if it's done right that can ensure that a hygienist can have, you know, a great career. Yeah, I, I I totally agree with that. Now, if a hygienist wanted to get into more of a management position, what kind of skills do you think they need to obtain to kind of move up into a, a more management position? Well, first, I would say, Befriend your mentor or whoever supervises your practice from an operational standpoint and maybe have a meeting with them and say, look, I'm really interested in developing my leadership skills and I'm here to let you know that, you know, if I can help with it in any way or volunteer to, you know, mentor other hygienists, I'd like to do that. And I'm open to any leadership opportunities that you might have for me. That's the first thing I would do. The second thing I would do is get really clear on my production numbers and how by increasing your clinical care to your hygienist, you increase your production. That just goes hand in hand. So I would, that's not to say the highest producing hygienists are always the best hygienists. So you have to look mm -hmm. at a lot of different yeah. uh, criteria. Sure. And then the other thing I would say is if you're serious about that is you need to develop your brand, your personal brand. And I just really discovered this in the last couple of years myself, but get on LinkedIn. It's not the same as Facebook. LinkedIn is not, you know, a popularity contest or a place to talk about, you know, where you went on vacation. It is a business site and it is to develop relationships. So I would get on LinkedIn I would start paying attention to who are the DSO players, start commenting on people that you see that you admire in the DSO space, start commenting, whether it's congratulations on what you're doing 
or somebody that's written something that you agree with. So you begin to develop a presence. You begin to develop a brand, your own personal brand. And, and this is huge now in business. We're, I, I'm seeing that across the board for any industry, not just associate your brand with your company, but encouraging people to develop their own brand. So I would say as a hygienist, you know, what do you believe in? What do you stand for? You know, do we believe in the oral systemic connection? Are you passionate about uh, doing oral cancer screening? Are you passionate about early detection of uh, periodontal disease? You know, what are your core values personally as a professional? And then let that be known on LinkedIn. So I think those are some good ways to start. We don't have a, you know, Christine, we could talk about that for, we could do a workshop on that actually. <laughs> Yeah, but, but that's um, really great advice, Janet. Yeah, that's great advice. If people want to know more, I'm happy for somebody to direct message me and give them some coaching. Yeah, yeah, that's great advice. Now, I want to talk a little bit about a book you wrote that I read called Selling Dentistry. I know that a lot of people get very upset. They don't want to sell their patients, that they're clinicians, not salespeople. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I want you to kind of explain it to me. Or to us, because reading the book, and I under I understand it. I mean, I think that everything everything is sales. Your day to day life is is full of sales that you might not even be aware of. Absolutely. But I want you to kind of enlighten us about how to think about these things and how to focus more, you know, on the patient care as opposed to maybe the sale. Hmm. Yeah, well, we want to think of this as relationships, not a transaction. So let me let me back up. Selling dentistry, and 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 I I want to include here the 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 title has a tagline that's very important. It's selling dentistry ethically, elegantly, and effectively. So ethically means we're not selling anybody a bill of goods that they don't need. Everything that we quote unquote sell or present to the patient has to be clinically diagnosed and documented with radiographs or periodontal probing, you know, whatever. But it's 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 something that definitely is clinically diagnosed as being um, recommended or and or needed. Effectively just means did they say yes? I mean, you can patient educate all day long, but if the patient doesn't say yes, you're not being effective. So did the patient say yes to treatment? Did they show up for their appointment? Did they get the treatment done? And did they pay, pay for it? So that's what those three words in the tagline support. So selling dentistry was born from dentists who said to me, Janet, when you come in to do tr uh, training or, or in our office, can you teach my team how to sell dentistry? I hear things. I know dentistry is walking out the door. And to tell you the truth, I could use some training myself. But whatever you do, don't just don't call it sell. <laughs> so <laughs> I've had dentists say, you know, you really shouldn't call your presentation selling dentistry. We we don't like that. And I'd say, well, then how come all my rooms are always completely full with standing room only. And he said, oh, no, no, we want to learn how to sell dentistry. We just don't want to call it that. So, yeah. you know, there's this, it's semantics. There's this resistance in dentistry for the word sell. That It's interesting, the word sell actually has some beginnings in either some sort of Scandinavian country where the word sell comes from the word to serve. 
So think of selling. Okay, our brain is divided into two halves, left and right. This is just science. Now, we now know that one side of our brain is focuses on creative things, communication, creativity, our emotion. It's our emotional side. The other side is the very logical side. So in dentistry, where do you think we live? We live in the logical side. We live in a world of millimeters. So when we talk to a patient about treatment, what do we talk to them about? We talk to them about all this logical science right. that makes sense to us. But guess what? We know from studies that patients make buying decisions in general and also health buying decisions based on emotion, not logic. All you have to do is look at commercials and see that they are appealing to our emotion, not logic. We justify our decisions with logic, but we make them with our emotions. This has been many studies have supported this. So in dentistry, we need to be connecting with our patients emotionally where they are. So in my book, I have a whole process for that, the discovery process of finding out, well, how do I do that, Janet? How do I find, how do I meet my patients where they are emotionally? So, and it's by finding out their values, asking open-ended values questions. So in dentistry, we talk too much. Mm -hmm. talk too much if we I agree. explain it to the patient if they don't get it we explain it again we just keep filling right. their bucket till right. it's overflowing and they're like you know getting a drink of water from a from a, a, a fire hydrant so we need to learn how to step back and ask open-ended questions and then zip it up and just listen wait for that pregnant pause don't feel like you have to jump in listen and get patients to talk about themselves and their values and their needs so and i have strategies for that in in my book and the strategies in my book are are communication soft skills and anybody can do it. You don't have to be an extrovert type personality. As a matter of fact, sometimes people who are more shy and retiring and 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 soft and diminutive make some of the the best best salespeople because they 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 seem more empathetic and they can relate to pe other people who who have that who are more introvertish. So. And I think they listen. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's such a skill that, we're, like you said, we just keep telling them the logical stuff and they're not getting mm -hmm. it. And we are mm -hmm. trying to just like browbeat them into like, you have a <laughs> disease. But sometimes I, I totally agree with you. The emotional side, we have to get that in and find the values. Yeah. Yeah. So I know you talk sometimes about the clinical cap for hygienists and the business, the business cap. So this is kind of what you're talking about in that respect, correct? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, when I, when I graduated from college, I went to the Medical College of Georgia. I had a great education. I have a Bachelor of Science in Dental Hygiene. So and I thought I got a great education. Patient education was one of my favorite topics. I'm a talker and I love to communicate. And so I thought... I was great at communicating when I got out of school. And I'll, I'll tell you um, a little story because storytelling is part of selling dentistry also. One of my earliest patients was a bank president that came in for his routine cleaning and he turned out to be a perio patient. So I launched into my very best 
dissertation of periodontal disease and why he needed to, you know, do something about it and take care of it. And, and <laughs> at one point he reached his arm up and he patted me on my arm and he said, little lady, little lady, please dispense with the lecture. I have an important meeting to go to. So just hurry up and let me, let me leave. <laughs> yeah. How many of us have heard that? <laughs> oh, so you can imagine how embarrassed I was. And, and, and then I was so angry. Like, how could he, he's a bank president. How could he not care about his perio health? And then of course I got over it and I thought, okay, where did I miss the boat, Janet? How could you have so poorly not related to this patient? And what I now know, you know, if I had known then what I what I've learned over the years, that began my quest to study communication styles and figure out, you know, how how do you how do you sell dentistry? How do you increase your case get, get case acceptance? So over the years, I put together my my philosophy, and that's in in the book. But to answer your question, what I didn't know then, I just thought, you know, all this numbers and all the business part, that's for the front desk. I'm a hygienist. I'm a clinician. That's my job. I do the clinical part and you guys do all the that business stuff. So <laughs> once I became a consultant, I was I was encouraged to become a consultant. I said, I'll never be a consultant. And then I became a consultant. <laughs> so. <laughs> the the very first thing i had to learn is the things that you and i have been talking about you know what's what what do you what do you measure how do you measure what does that mean in terms of performance and then how do you turn that into clinical strategies to improve to improve that so i think it's important that you are able to look at a dashboard look at the metrics and you know different different DSOs, different solo practices have different practice management softwares, whatever that is, but they all have the ability for you to look at your performance, those procedure performance indicators. That's the report. See, because you, so you want to see your procedures by the procedure code and see how many of them are you doing? So, you know, if I'm putting my business cap on, I'm going to say, okay, as a hygienist, 75% of the people in this country have some level of periodontal disease, whether it's gingivitis or periodontitis. So I'm going to look at my procedure reports and I'm going to look and see, well, how many scaling and root plannings am I doing? How many quads? I'm going to see how many, I mean, you can anecdotally as a hygienist guess how many of your patients, what percentage have gingivitis. Sure. If they're bleeding and they don't have any bone loss, they have gingivitis. Any hygienist, you know, who's paying attention is going to say, oh, yeah, I bet half of my patients have that. Or I bet three fourths of my patients. So let's look at the number and see exactly what that is. What are your quadrants of scaling and root planning? And more importantly, what are your profies? So if we believe the fact that according to the American Dental Association and according to the American Periodontal Association, it seems to be the number anywhere between 75, 85%, let's say 75, that's easier to work with, then only 25% of my procedures should be profies. So if my profies are higher than that, then we go back and we look at, well, clinically, what are we doing? Are we probing all of our patients? 
Are we, do we have a criteria for how we diagnose? I know hygienists aren't legally allowed to diagnose, but we certainly are able to assess and work partner with our doctors. So together we agree on the, on the criteria. And then if I, if I'm doing prophies on patients that are perio patients, how do I change that? So, and a lot of the selling dentistry protocols in there, you know, help, help with that. So it's more than just going in and punching a clock and putting on my clinical hat. I want to be paying attention to as a business. If I was a hygienist and I was allowed in a state, which hygienists have been trying to get, if I was allowed to have my own practice, what would I have to look at? What would I be looking at? So I hope that sort of answers it. Uh, yeah. Let me let, wrap it up by saying patient care and numbers aware. Oh, I love that. Patient care, numbers aware. I love that. Well, thank you so much. If any of our viewers or our listeners want to reach out to you, how do they get in touch with you, Janet? I would love to hear, hear from them. You can, my website is janethagerman.com, J-A-N-E-T-H-A-G-E-R-M-A-N. It's just my name, janethagerman.com. You can email me at janet at janethagerman.com. I'd be happy to respond. Or you can call me at 678-371-8234. I won't answer if I don't recognize your name. So be sure to leave me a message so I can get back to you. I'd love to speak with any of your listeners. Thank you so much, Janet. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the DSO Hygienist Podcast. Please follow or subscribe to be notified about new episodes.